mighty God and everlasting Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we are able to walk in just about any store, even a convenience store, pick up your word and have a copy of it in this land of freedom in which there are many people across the nation who do not have your word and are not able to find it or get it or learn from it or read from it. We thank you, O God, that this morning we're able to look in one of the most blessed passages in all of the Bible concerning Christ's work, concerning he as our federal head, and then as the federal husband, he as the federal head of the family. We ask, O God, that both in the preaching of the word and the hearing of the word, your spirit would attend, that there would be unction, that there would be power, that there would be an attentiveness to listen, that our hearts and our minds would be given over to your word, and we would then learn from it and be taught by it. We so pray for your grace and mercy and ask for your help in this. We ask it by your spirit. Give him to us in abundance, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we go to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. And in this series on biblical reformation, we're in the seventh part that begins a second sub-part to family reformation. As last week we talked briefly about family devotions, this week we talk about the duties of the federal husband. And next week we will talk about the duties of the wife of noble character. The week after that we'll talk about parents and children. The week after that, we'll talk about keeping to the heart that all of these things in family worship and husbands and wives and children might be done as God so intended them. Let's look at Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, and of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. The text itself, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 is set in the context of edifying the church, edifying the body, submitting to one to another. In verse 18 in chapter 5, we see that we are to be filled with the Spirit, 
not drunk with wine, or really what Paul is thinking about is not being drunk with wine, but being drunk in the Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit in this way exemplifies itself in various ways. We minister in song to one another, he says in this particular chapter. We give thanks to God, and we submit to one another before God. So from here, Paul moves into the Christian family, which is finished and is completed in chapter 6, verse 9, when he begins talking about children and also masters and slaves, because many households had slaves. But the contrast here, in this context of edifying the body, is given between Christ and the church. The family unit that's made up of the husband and wife, which Paul begins here, is set against the parallel of Christ and the church. A single person is not a family. But once a husband and wife come together, as he quotes Genesis, and says that the two become one flesh, they become a family unit. One man and one woman joined together. As Christ and the church act in relationships, so, to a great extent, the husband and wife relate. Marriage is forever, and scripturally seen as a positive and wonderful and most excellent thing. If you look at Christ in the church, that Christ is the Savior of the church, this is a most excellent, wonderful, powerfully positive thing. And marriage, in contrast, and in parallel, is what Paul is referring to. Different than Christ in the church as husband and wife, in contrast, we'll look at some of those things, because husband and wives are sinful, Christ is not. But in parallel, marriage is to reflect the relationship that Christ has with his church. And it's interesting as to how Paul begins this comparison by utilizing being in subjection to one another as his motif. The church is to esteem each other better than themselves. They're to be subject to one another. And so Paul says, well, as the church is subject to Christ, so wives are subject to their husbands and parallels that relationship. And the argument is posed as interlaced. He goes back and forth between Christ and the church and husband and wives all through this, showing how subjugation works. One of the most pinnacle verses in this section is verse 25, where it talks about Christ loving the church. And the question has to be posed so that we understand how husbands are to love their wives. They have to first ask the question, how does Christ love the church? And Paul explains it in this passage. It says in verse 23, it describes him basically as the federal head of the church. Christ is the head or representative on behalf of the church. And he does four things for the church. He governs the church, he protects the church, he preserves the church, and he provides for the church. In governing, he governs all her actions in his providence. And government is not suggestive. The scriptures are not good suggestions for us to follow. Government is by coercion. This is what you will do because I am the head. So when we read the scriptures, Christ is executing the office of his kingship 
over his people in governing them. That's why he said, as we saw in Matthew 28, 16-20, when he said, all authority, all authority is given unto him. He is the head of the church and governs the church. He also protects the church. He protects the church from herself, and he protects the church from her enemies. Certainly from herself and all of the sinful things that his church could do, there is a great providence in his protection, and also for his enemies. All of the enemies that come against the church. 1 Corinthians 15.25 says, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. He protects her. He also preserves the church. He gives her grace. He gives her spirit power. Isaiah 63 in verse 9 says, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. He preserves the church. He loves the church. He gives grace to his church. He outpours the Spirit to his church. As the exalted Messiah, the right hand of God, he sends the Spirit to do his will on behalf of the church. And he also provides for his church. He nourishes her for her good and for her well-being. Romans 8.28 And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. He does all of those things for the church. Why? Because as Paul says in verse 23, he is the savior of the church. The office of Christ as the Savior of the body is that the Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and by his perfect sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up unto God, has fully satisfied the justice of his Father and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those for whom the Father has given unto him. That's the Westminster Confession, chapter 8, paragraph 5. Christ is the Savior. Covenantally, he is joined to his body as the covenant mediator, and he dispenses all of those blessings in the covenant of grace in which his elect partake. He fulfills the covenant of redemption, and he administers it in time in the covenant of grace to his people. And that's a blessing they get. That's a blessing they're able to have. Because he, and he alone, the only mediator between God and man, is the savior of the church. Paul not only declares that that's the case, but he also demonstrates it by explaining what Jesus had done. He loved the church in giving himself up for the church. He loves the church as he loves his own body. And that's an argument that Paul is going to utilize for the husband in the way that he is to treat his wife. Christ loves his body. Christ is the head of the body. Christ nourishes the body and cherishes the body and loves the body and gives himself up for the body. Hebrews 2 and verse 17. Therefore in all things... 
He had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. This is what he did. He came down to do that. He was humiliated to do that. That's the declaration in Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He is organically joined to the church in which it is inseparable from him. John 6.53, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. We eat his flesh. We drink his blood. We are organically joined to him. And through that connection, he sanctifies the church as the head, as the thought of God. He sanctifies the church by the word. He makes her holy and without blemish. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. The word and the sacraments are the only two things that God has given the church that they might be blessed. And Jesus utilizes those things, the visible word seen in the sacraments, and the word itself to sanctify her, to make her holy to make her perfect. It is his job to be proactive to change the church into what she is going to become. Husbands, keep that in mind. In the same parallel that Christ has a certain relationship with the church, Paul parallels the husband and the wife in marriage. He explains that the husband is also the federal head of the wife. The husband is the head of the wife, the representative before God on behalf of the family. That places in his lap a great amount of responsibility because when God is upset with the family or the family is dysfunctional, or the family has problems, it's not to the wife or the children that God goes, it's to the head, the federal head, to the husband. And that's where he points his finger. The husband being the head of the wife in the same way that Christ is the head of the church, has great responsibilities over the family, in that he must govern the family, he must protect the family, he must preserve the family, and he must provide for the family. He governs the family by coercion, not suggestion, just as Christ does. The family is not a democracy where everybody is on equal status and gets a vote and majority vote rules. Rather, the federal head mimics Christ's kingly government over the church. The king is never governing, though, at the expense of his love. Paul is not setting up some tyrannical dictator. Remember, Christ died for his church. He comes and he humiliates himself. He takes upon flesh. He lives under the law. And he dies at the hands of sinners. The husband dies daily for his family and for his wife, or the husband should. The husband not only governs in love and has authority 
over his family in that way, but he also protects. He mimics Christ's kingly protection over the church by protecting his family, spiritually and materially, both in body and soul. He also preserves his family. He mimics Christ's power to preserve through teaching the word, preserving them spiritually, maturing them, being salt to them. And he also provides for them. He mimics Christ's ability to provide both materially and spiritually for his family. That's what he does. The husband, Paul says, is to love his wife just as he loves his own body. All the other duties that a husband accomplishes on behalf of his wife are comprised in the love and great affection of the husband and is bound to that duty to love his wife and to do all of those things in conjunction for his wife, but always through love. It's not just duty. You know, I've used that illustration before when the husband comes home and he gives his wife a a thing of flowers and a, a box of candy. She opens the door. There he is waiting for him, and he hands it over, and she's all excited that he's done that. And she goes, thank you so much for caring. And he says, no, no, don't misunderstand. I'm only doing it because it's my duty to do it. Well, she would be crushed if he said that to her. That's not the kind of duty that the husband has. His duty is always expressed in love. And it's done out of expressed obligation because he knows what his role is before Christ, but it's done housed in love with all the necessary feelings that accompany that love and are expressed to her and demonstrated to her. That love duty is done from a heartfelt obligation to fulfill everything that he wants to do before God and on behalf of his wife, who reaps the benefit of the duty. He wants to please God. The federal head, first and foremost, wants to please God, yet the wife reaps all of the benefits, just in the same way as Christ so desires to please the Father and does all that he does to redeem his body, the church. Yet, first and foremost, Christ is in covenant with the Father to fulfill that, yet the church reaps all sorts of benefits. No duty to Christ or the wife could be accomplished without love, because as we know, or we should know, that begrudging service is sin. He who doesn't love his wife in his duty hates his wife, which is part of Paul's paralleled point. You cannot abuse your body and love your body at the same time. Even when someone commits suicide and destroys their body, they still think, that's the best choice that they have. The husband is also joined to his wife in a special way. He is covenantally and organically joined to her. He is bound by covenant before God to her. That's why Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2, 23-25, talking about how the husband and wife come together and they cleave to one another and they're joined and they're bone of their bones and flesh of their flesh and they're taken out of this and given to that and mixed together and leaves this and comes together and becomes a unit. They're joined together in such a way that it's not just a piece of paper that's handed into the court that causes someone to be married, but they're covenantally joined before God. And not only is he joined covenantally, but he's joined organically, physically, 
Paul's argument surrounds that the wife is treated as the husband's body. They become literally one flesh in their union. They become one flesh literally and one flesh spiritually. That's the heart. That's the basic outline of that passage. Now we're going to pull this doctrine out of the text, which is very straightforward and very simple. It comes just straight out of Ephesians 5.25. That the duties of the federal husband follow the analogy of Christ and the church, in that the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Seems very simple, very straightforward, but let's look at this a little bit closer. In God's wisdom, he has providentially set the husband and wife together. To uphold the duty of the husband, a husband must first acknowledge that God has providentially given this woman to him. Genesis 24 and verse 67. If you remember Abraham sending out his servant to find his son Isaac, a wife. But the entire story is set in God's decree in God's providence. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The Lord providentially gives the wife to the husband, and in doing so, demonstrates his wise his wisdom to bring these two together, and the husband has to acknowledge that first. It wasn't an accident that he had this particular wife. It was by God's specific providence that that was so. And not only that must be kept in mind, but also we need to really understand briefly the idea of what it means to be a federal head, or, a, or what federal means, or phodios in Latin where that term came from in theology. Because it means to be in covenant with God. It means to be in covenant with his wife. A covenant is a pact or agreement between two parties that involves blessing and cursing. Certain stipulations must be met. He's covenanted first with God, and then he's covenanted with her. He's in an agreement with God, and he is in an agreement with her. Now, just to clear up one thing, because once we start talking about the federal headship, the headship of the husband over the wife, people start to raise red flags up, and they say, no, no, everyone's created equal. Well, we don't want to miss the point that by way of salvation, by way of being saved, the husband and wife are equal and obtain equal benefits from Christ in salvation. They're both saved, they're both elected, they both receive the benefits of the Spirit, they are both on the same playing ground in that respect. But in the hierarchy of the family, that is not the way the structure of the family is set up. That is not the way that God intended Adam and Eve to be set up. Paul's arguments surrounding headship follow the creation of Adam and Eve before the fall. So, Non-fallen, no sin, Adam and Eve. Paul pertains to the authority of the husband over the wife by the creation of Adam first and Eve second. 1 Timothy 2, 12-13. And I do not permit a woman to teach 
or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Why? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. The structure is pre-fall. The structure is an ordinance of creation paradise. This is the structure that the family unit is to hold. So the husband is the head of the wife, and the husband has been providentially given this wife, and he has to keep both of those things in mind. Now, the way that he governs, preserves, protects, and provides is manifested in love. Love is manifested by the husband to the wife in, first, a wise preservation of his headship and authority over her. A wise preservation of his headship and authority over her. Husbands who relinquish their authority to their wives are sinning against the express command and structure of God's ordained manner of marriage. The husband is the head. The wife is not. If the wife is overpowering and the husband allows it, in any way, shape, or form, he is sinning. And, he consequently, and consequently, she is fulfilling a sinful role of having desired to rule her husband, which is exactly part of the curse in Genesis 3. Her desire shall be for her husband. The idea being that her desire is to rule him. He is not to relinquish that authority in any way. Proverbs 31 and verse 3, given to King Lemuel by none other than his mother. She said to him, do not give your strength to women. You're not allowed. The idea behind this word strength surrounds masculinity, headship, power, strength. Do not give your strength to women. Wives that see a loving administration of authority, are glad to be in subjection to it. And we'll look at the wife's role next week and what that means and how that works. But the husband is to uphold the wise preservation of his leadership and authority over her. He is supposed to continue that. He is to not relinquish that at any moment and at any place. He's also to have, secondly, a wise administration. Not just a preservation, not just that he has to keep it, but he has to administer it wisely in his authority over her. You know, you have to ask the question, can husbands deal unwisely with their wives? Of course they can. Certainly. But that overthrows the idea of having a wise administration in the, in the, in the way that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3.7. Listen to what he says. Husbands... Likewise, dwell with them, that's your wife, with what? With understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. The husband is to wisely administer his authority over his wife, and he's to do it in a way in which he knows how to do that. That's what wise means. Knowing how to deal with them. Dealing with them in knowledge or understanding maintains a wise preservation and administration of his authority over them. But you have to do it in knowledge. Knowing how to deal with them. God always deals wisely with his church. Christ always deals wisely with his church. Why? 
because he knows everything. Wisdom is the right application of knowledge. So the husband must always wisely administer his authority, which means he's got to know how to deal with every situation, which means he has to know how to deal with his wife with understanding. Well, how does he do, how does he do that? How does he wisely administer his authority over her? Well, this is where love must be demonstrated to her. Not only, has he, has, not only does he have to have in his mind that he must preserve his authority and not relinquish it, but he has to administer it in a way that it's couched in love for the betterment of the marriage itself. Love demonstrates or is demonstrated in a wise preservation and administration of his authority and that mimics Christ's selflessness in his humiliation. That's Paul's argument. Christ came and he died. He gave himself as a sacrifice. Christ came because of the glory that was set before him and fulfilled all those things and giving of himself selflessly. Even when they were wicked against him, even men, even as we read Romans 5 eight, he demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners. But in his resurrection, he leads captivity captive and he gives gifts to men. First Peter 2.21, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. So husbands are to do that. And it's interesting that in that first Peter chapter two, and just a few verses later, Peter begins speaking about subjection in husbands and wives. It's following Christ's example and what Christ accomplished and how he does it by his selflessness. The husband has to demonstrate outwardly this love by example. It should be unmistakable, not only to the wife, but by others in the household, or even others interconnected with the household, or around the household, or other family members. In this love, in this administration of his wise headship in love, it entails all of his judgments that he has to make on behalf of the family. That which he believes to be most prayerfully right on behalf of the family. God has gifted the husband with the necessary abilities to make wise choices on behalf of the family. But it must be exercised wisely and by way of understanding. It's not just that the husband gets to do whatever he wants to do. It's that the husband must do what is in the best interest of his family and what is in um, informed to him by scripture. He's informed by scripture about the best way to go about treating his family. So his judgments are very important on behalf of his family. Does that mean that her judgments or her observations or her insight into things are discarded? Not even remotely. He would not be wisely administering his judgments for the family if he did not take into consideration things that he might not have seen or might not have understood that were communicated to him by the wife. So it entails her judgment as well. Her opinion, her counsel, her observations on any given situation should be considered. Even, to a certain extent, the children's considerations. Some of their ideas. If the husband is going to be wise, if the father is going to be wise on behalf of the entire family, some of those things should be taken into consideration. Now, they might be accepted 
outrightly. They might be rejected outrightly. Yet it's still the husband's decisions that are made in the wise administration of his authority on behalf of the family on any given situation. The wife takes no credit for her husband's exercise of authority. She simply relies on his good judgment. Even when he thinks that there's something that he should do, and the wife says, why don't you do it this way? And he says, hmm, that's better than my way. Let me throw that away and utilize that particular option. It's still the exercise of his authority in utilizing that decision on behalf of the family. The wife doesn't want to rule the family. The wife doesn't want to rule her husband. The wife wants to be led. It's the way God designed her. The curse presses them. Sin presses them to desire to overthrow that wise administration, especially when it's not so wise sometimes. But the wife should take no credit for her husband's exercise of authority. And in that administration, in that authority, the husband is to act in love to his wife. He's to have an inward affection for her and an outward affection for her. An inward, entire affection for her. So, this administration, this federal headship, has to start in his brain, has to start in his mind. He has to first have an inward affection to her, entirely built on biblical love. The way a husband thinks about his wife will ultimately be seen in the manner that he treats her. He has to be chaste in his thoughts. He has to be pure in his thoughts. And he has to be constant in his thoughts and affections toward her. What does chaste mean? Innocent of unlawful sexual intercourse or innocent of lust. He has to be chaste in his thoughts towards her. Proverbs 2.17 The adulterer and the adulteress who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. That's what happens. He is to be pure in thought and act. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5 For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Or, as Proverbs 5, 15-19, exhorts us, Drink water from your own cistern, and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? That's a good question. No, shouldn't be that way. Let them be only your own, and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. That is the way the husband is to think inwardly of his wife. And God has providentially given this one woman to the husband and he is to think only of her sexually. His mind should be chaste. Her sexuality should satisfy him at all times. And he has to have love to his wife which manifests itself in the manner of his thought life, in the way he just thinks he should have a chaste mind. He should also have a pure mind, free 
from moral fault or guilt towards his wife. See, there's no hidden agenda for the husband. There's no hidden agenda or manipulation going on. He's not trying to control her in a manipulating fashion. He holds nothing against her. He doesn't manipulate her in speech or in action. To manipulate is to twist and to deceive. To practice what Paul says in Galatians is witchcraft. That's not the way he treats her. That's not the way he loves her. His dealings with her are to be pure, thoughtful, and without manipulation. That's why Malachi chapter 2 and verse 15 says, Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. They are not to do that. They are to deal faithfully with the wife. They are to deal with them in a pure manner. They're also to deal with them constantly, marked by a firm and steadfast resolution and faithfulness. There should be a great mark of stability in the life and dealing that the federal husband has with his wife. She should be able to look to him and see stability in the home, stability in his relations, stability in his affections, stability in every area of his life. He is the rock for her. How stable, might we ask, is Christ for the Christian? At what time can the Christian look to Christ and find instability? At no time. Loving her as Christ loved the church, that's how the husband is to love her. Immutably so. That's why Proverbs, I love that part of Proverbs in 5.18, and rejoice with the wife of your youth. When couples are married, they are rejoicing. When they're old, they should still be rejoicing at deeper levels of social and spiritual maturity with one another. That's what should be happening as a result of that love that's being kindled. So they're to be chaste, they're to be pure, they're to be constant. That's the way that they should be thinking about how their relationship with marriage is. And interestingly enough, that's only the inward thoughts of the husband. That's how his mind is supposed to be set. But the love should also be outward. An outward expression of love to his wife. He is to consistently take care of her. An outward expression of his love consists in taking care of her. He provides for her materially. He is the material source of blessing for his wife and for his home. He provides for her soul. He provides for her body. We'll see the role of the wife next week. But the husband, while he is out at the gates, according to Proverbs 31, going about his, his business, going about the affairs of business, he knows his wife is home taking care of things. She is there. And he is taking care of her in his respective role. 1 Timothy 5.8 is directed against the lazy husband. But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's applied to the lazy husband, the husband who doesn't want to take care of his wife. Clothes to wear, food to eat, shelter, transportation, all of those things are the responsibility of the federal head to provide for his household. But not only does he demonstrate his love in providing for her in that way, but he also has to provide for her spiritually. 
Verse 29 in Ephesians 5 talks about cherishing and nourishing her. As we saw last week, Joshua 24:15. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve him. We will worship him all the days of our life. The husband is to spiritually nurture. As spiritual as the husband is, so will his household be. Household devotions, whether they're relinquished or not, will demonstrate whether the household will relinquish them or not. Remember, Adam relinquished that right, that spiritual headship, while he was standing in the garden with his wife. And he allowed the devil to talk with her, and then allowed her to deceive him as well. He relinquished his headship, and he didn't provide for Eve's spirituality. He should have, at that very moment, judged the serpent. And at that very moment, the serpent would have been judged. The husband is to spiritually present the wife without spot or wrinkle, just, just as Christ does the church. That's his job. He is even to bear and long-suffer with her infirmities and her weaknesses. Now, that differs from barking at her as a result of her infirmities and weaknesses. How quickly would Christians be devoured if Christ was not long-suffering for our sins? He is to be long-suffering with his wife in her frailties, in her weaknesses, in her infirmities. He is to keep her from danger in every way. Spiritual danger, physical danger, bodily danger. He's to protect her. And he is to demonstrate in all of these things, he is to show her outwardly and allow her to know she is loved. He's to demonstrate love to her in speech and in action. In speech, federal husbands never embarrass their wives in public. Imagine if Christ embarrassed us for our sin publicly every time we sin, and everybody knew it. Federal husbands don't embarrass their wives in their speech, and they don't embarrass their wives in their actions. They give them physical love. They help her and aid her to become the best that she can be. That's what the federal husband's job is, to make his wife the best she can be, the best woman, the best woman before Christ, the best woman, the best wife, the best mother. That's the husband's job. Christ demonstrates his love for the church in speech, in his word, and in action, in his life, in his death, in his selflessness, in his present intercession. The husband is to esteem her, or as verse 29 says, cherish her, loving her more than he loves himself. Such love is as the same in, as what Christ did is sacrificial, giving himself over to his wife. He gives himself and esteems her in private, and, and the, very, the Greek word there means to warm her, to cherish her with tender love or to foster tender care for her. So when you hear that uh, whispering sweet nothings in her ear, that kind of idea, he has to cherish her and tenderly deal with her. Not to be harsh or rash 
or mean. In public, he's to honor the wife before others, not belittling her, not humiliating her. How they are treated or spoken of in front of others is the duty of the federal husband to love his wife. Such a love is free and true. And he that doesn't love his wife cannot bring but great misery and pains on himself as accountable to God. Because God will not bless him. God will not hear his prayers, as Peter says. If there is strife or difficulty or if the husband is not fulfilling his duty in loving his wife. So not only is he to have a wise preservation and administration of authority over her, not only is he to love her inwardly and outwardly and demonstrate that love to her and show her that love, she could be acutely aware of it, but he also has to have a keen acknowledgement of his close relation with his wife being joined to her and one flesh with her. His authority should never overpower the good-natured cleaving he has with her. He's not a dictator. His authority, in other words, should not be exercised at the expense of caring for his own body. Caring for her very, that's a very thin line to move from caring for the wife in the way that the husband desires it biblically and informed by Scripture to wanting her to do certain things and becoming a tyrant over her. Abusives, abusive husbands are not husbands and don't act like husbands. That's why Paul's point is not to abuse one's own body. You don't abuse your own body. You want your body to be healthy. You want your body to be free from illness. You want your body to be utilized at maximum potential. It's the same with the wife. That's the federal husband's thought life for his wife. Abusive husbands are double-minded men who have forgotten or rejected their authority as one who must care for his wife as he does his own body. Because marriage is patterned after the indissoluble nature of Christ and his body. And her be separate. Christ doesn't abuse his body. Christ uplifts and nourishes and cherishes and dies and is selfless for that body. Marriage is to reflect that. The husband is to reflect that. The wife and the husband are one. They're one flesh. God binds them together by covenant and by physical union. But they're not only spiritually one, but physically one. And the husband must keep in mind that the manner in which he treats his wife is the manner of his own abuse or non-abuse to his own body. Her. Does Christ abuse his body? He does not. And the husband must not either. So there has to be and has to remain a proper balance between authority over the body and care of the body. And he must be wise and have a keen acknowledgement of that relation and of that joining with her so that he can administer his authority in a right way, in a preserving way, in an authoritative way, and at the same time, in a loving way. The federal husband and his duties are so exemplified and so easily seen in Ephesians 5, applying these ideas surrounding the federal head are not very difficult, especially for us. How do we, as Christian husbands in our own mind, live up to the expectation, no, the command 
of loving our wives as Christ loves the church. How do we live up to that? It is too often that selfish motives rule our affections at the expense of building up our body, which is our wife. Where do we place our wives in action, in practicality? Where do we place them in our list of, of important things to do today? We have this to do, we have this to do, we have this to do. Oh yes, we also have to help our wives with this particular infirmity today. Where, where do those things add up on our important to do things? If we were to ask our wives where they lined up, what would they say? If we were to give our wives a test as to our faithfulness in fulfilling our duties to them, what would we score? It doesn't matter so much what we think we've accomplished. What does matter, first to God, as to whether or not we've acted like Christ to our wives. And then secondly, how our wives think we've acted to them. Is it more painful to live with us in their mind than they are rejoicing with the wife or the husband of their youth, wives of our youth? What kind of atmosphere do we build up in our homes and around our wives? Are we smothering them with love and affection? Would our wives say, I have such an uncommon union with my husband? Uncommon meaning one that is so rare in this world in such a way that drives me to delight in him all the more. That's much different than the wife simply saying, I love my husband. Because love can be out of a sense of duty. Eternity is weighed in the balance for these things. We protect our bodies against infections and illnesses and try to eat right and exercise and take medicine and we work out and we diet and we do all of the things to make sure our bodies are right. Christ does that with the church. Remember, she gives her the word, blesses her with the power of the Holy Spirit. The federal husband is to do that with his wife. We are to do everything we can to build up resistance to the things of the world, the things that would intrude on our duty towards our wife. We're supposed to build up resistance to that. We're supposed to be guards of our home. We should be building up our wives by our speech, by our actions, by our demonstrations of love, by our stability, by our spiritual direction, by our material sustenance, that she is protected from the world, from the flesh, from the devil. That's our job. It's our duty. The body needs food, the body needs exercises, the body needs understanding how it works. The husband cares for his body as Christ cares for his body, the church. Does he do that for his wife? The body needs things to survive. So do our wives. Yet, every wife is different. And interestingly enough, when husbands marry their wives, the preacher doesn't suddenly hand them a manual and say, here's the manual on your wife. As federal husbands, we have to be keen to make our wives our life study so that we can enable them and nurture them as they should be to grow into the woman that Christ desires. That's what our job is. In one book called The Complete Husband, Lou Priolo says, your wife doesn't have a manual? Fine, go write one. Write up the manual. How do you build her up? Maybe your wife has particular weaknesses. What are you doing to help her overcome it? Her weaknesses are your duties. Maybe she has what we'll call special characteristics that annoy you. 
Well, those characteristics and their eradication is not her primarily responsible or her primary responsibility. It's your primary responsibility to help her. Think about Christ and the church. What can the church do without the help of Christ? Nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. It's not her primary responsibility. It's your primary responsibility to eradicate those annoying characteristics. What is your reaction to her annoyances? Are you quick to condemn her? Or are you wise to enable her to overcome it gracefully? Do everything, this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, do everything you can to safeguard her from the weaknesses and the infirmities and the frailties. As you do so for your body, do so for your wife. Do you talk to her? Not vent to her, talk to her. Not patronize her, talk to her. Think about the wise husband and the way he talks with his wife. Tell her about your worries, but do it in a manner that doesn't make her worry. Now that's a wise husband who can do that. Tell her about your business in a manner that enlivens her respect for you. Tell her about your secret sins in a manner that prompts her not to look at you in disgust, but to pray for you. Now, that's a wise husband. It's the wise husband who knows how to communicate with her, to build her up, and uses that mode of edification to make her better. That's always his agenda. That's always his open agenda. How do you fulfill her needs that can only be obtained and fulfilled by your actions. If we're speaking about the union and work of Christ and what he does with the church, that question would be very easy. We could list all sorts of things and talk for hours on that particular subject and how Christ fulfills the need of the church by his action. But when we have to apply this to ourselves in our relationship with our wives, even in this brief overview, and this is very brief, trust me, there's lots to talk about, we fall miserably short. The answer to our shortcomings is not just to say, well, we'll repent of those things and do better, but we have to demonstrate these things to our wives in such a way as that they know it. They know all of these things by our speech, by our actions, by how we deal with them. And they take a delight in that. The federal husband has great responsibilities before God may it be that we would fulfill them in a way that demonstrates the love that Christ has to the church inwardly, outwardly, by a wise administration, by a wise preservation, by a keen awareness, by all of these things that Christ does for his church, so let it be that we would do for our wives. We could go back and listen to this sermon five or six times and continually see points that we don't live up to and that we aren't very good at. But the duties of the federal husband must mimic Christ in the church. And that's why Paul says this is a great mystery because I'm really speaking about Christ in the church. But husbands and wives are supposed to act this way as well. Be remembering. Be keenly aware that you're one flesh. Be keenly aware that all these things must be fulfilled. And these are the commanded duties that the husband has over his family.
Let's pray together. Mighty God and everlasting Father, we thank you and bless you for all of your grace and all of your mercy and all that you do in redeeming us as the Savior of the body. You are, O God, the head, organically joined to the church. We thank you for all of your work in redeeming us. We pray that we as husbands might reflect what you have done to your church, that we might reflect that kind of selfless giving and love to our wives. Your scripture, O Lord, destroys our conceptions of ourselves, how good we think we've done, and places us in a place where we are always striving to be like Christ. Help us, O God, as federal husbands, to fulfill all that you would desire for our wives and help us build them up in a way in which they grow and delight in Christ and become the woman that you so want them to be and become the wife that you so want them to be and become the mothers that you so want them to be. Help us to do that. And if we are ignorant of how to do that, help us learn. That is our duty, O God. And we so pray that you would help us by your Spirit in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, 
they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.